Morning. Welcome to Lakeside. Uh, I'm Nate. <laughs> I'm the lead guy here, kind of. Yes. Hey, Dave. How are you this morning? So we're we're kind of in the no, we're not kind of. We're actually in the second section, the second part of the second chunk of the Sermon on the Mount. So there's a couple of different main sections of the Sermon on the Mount. It starts off with the Beatitudes. Mike covered those a couple weeks ago. And then it talks about the next section is sort of like Jesus explaining the law to us in a new way. And so we started that le- this last week. And so we're going to wrap up that section this week. Um, and, and we started off with talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law, right? We said, uh, so if you're not, if you weren't here, or if you don't really understand this, uh, it might be helpful for you to go back and either watch the live stream or listen to the podcast or whatever uh, to try and go through that again, because it is kind of important that we understand why Jesus is sort of saying these things. Uh, the basic understanding is this, that Jesus acknowledged that the law in the Old Testament was good, that it was given by God, and that we can't fulfill it, that we're going to fail if we try and knock it out, right? Like if we try and handle it, then we're going to fail. And so even though God expects us to be righteous and God wants us to be holy, we can't do it. And so Jesus didn't sort of explain everything about this, but the end result is that Jesus fulfilled the law himself. He was the one that did all the pieces of the law and brought it to its natural completion in himself and died on the cross, right, as the perfect fulfiller of the law, died on the cross and gave us his righteousness, Right? So that's the starting point of our relationship with Jesus is we come and we say, Jesus, I cannot do the, the expectations that God had of me, has of me. I need you to do it for me. And Jesus gives us that righteousness that's fulfilled in him, and then we receive that. He takes our sin, he died for our sin, we get his righteousness. Uh, now that wasn't, that wasn't explained in the Sermon on the Mount, but the part about him fulfilling the law was we can't fulfill the law, we don't get to ignore it. We don't get to put it away. Jesus fulfills it. And now our response is to live the way that Jesus called us to. And so Jesus is explaining sort of the heart behind some of the rules so that we can follow the reasons, that we can follow the the heart of God, that we can have a relationship with God based on our attitudes. So that's that's kind of the quick, the two-minute version of like half the message from last week. Uh, our, Our big idea from both last week and this week is this. True righteousness is deeper than following the rules, and we can only have it through Jesus. I can't earn my way to heaven. I can't earn righteousness before God. I can only have that because of what Jesus did, and it's not about the rules. It's about the heart behind the rules. And so we're going to continue to talk about that. The Sermon on the Mount isn't about earning God's favor or making God like me or making God want me in heaven. It's really about, this is the direction that I need to be living my life. This is how I need to be doing this in order to really understand the heart of God. And I think we kind of get tripped up when we read these because they are overwhelming. And, and the reason they're overwhelming is because we take our eyes off the cross. Like if we're focused on the cross, if we see Jesus died in order that to fulfill this and he gives me his righteousness, then we're like, okay, this is impossible, but I can just live in this direction. I can just repent and come back to God over and over and over and say, I can't do this, Lord. You've got to do this for me. I've got to work with you in order to accomplish this. And, and we understand that. But as soon as we stop focusing on the cross, the weight of God's expectations just destroy us. 
And we end up living in guilt and we living in shame. And, and so that's not what Jesus called us to do. He said, we need to repent. We need to come back to him, recognize him. We can't do it, but we just keep trying and we keep doing it through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? So we, we, uh, when we come to Christ, he gives us the Holy Spirit. That gives us the power to start living in this direction. And that really becomes the point of it. And, and I, dropped, I dropped it pretty heavy last week. I acknowledge that. Like it was pretty deep and I... That's true. <laughs> like, you guys were all kind of sitting here at the end, and you were like, wow, I can never do those things, right? Yes, no, that's true. The thing is, is Jesus didn't set us up to fail. He gives us the Holy Spirit, and he says, listen, you are going to fail. The Holy Spirit's going to give you the power to move in the right direction, and then you're going to have to repent over and over and over and over again. And that's, that's the summary of it, right? And so if, if you're sitting here, and you're like, I can't maintain this, that's part of the point, Right? The point is to be overwhelmed by the holiness of God and say, okay, God, I need your grace. I need your love. I can't do it on my own. So the structure that Jesus uses is basically it has been said, which is the rules that we understand, that we see. That's a lot of the Old Testament stuff. Some of it's like culturally understood in that day. But he says, you have heard it said, right? this is the rule. This is the rule that people have repeated. This is the rule that you think you have to follow. But I say to you, and then he makes it even tougher, right? It's not about that rule that judges the external behavior. It's about the heart that's behind that. And so we're going to keep following that formula today where Jesus keeps saying, you have heard it said, but I say to you. So we're going to, we're going to go through that. And it's going to be a couple different sections that we move through today. The first one is about marriage Here's the problem. <laughs> we broke it up, right? So last week we talked about lust and the fact that if, if you didn't commit adultery, but you, you're focused on lust, then that's breaking the commandment. And so this is kind of the second half of the same idea. Uh, it's still focused on sexuality and marriage. So that's still there. It's still connected to that, but it's not the exact same thing. So Remember, this is one sentence after what Jesus said last week, not six days, right? Like, there's no break there. And so have that in the back of your mind, that Jesus just said, listen, if you think that you're okay because you didn't commit adultery, but your life is focused about fulfilling your sexuality outside of the bounds that God has given, then you have to be aware that you've broken the command, right? So that's kind of the starting point, and then he moves into, into marriage, this is one of the smaller sections on divorce. So this is like a couple sentences. Be aware of that because I, I can't tease out everything that Jesus and, and Paul and everybody else teaches on divorce right here. So be aware if you're frustrated with how I cover this, that's okay. I was frustrated preparing it. <laughs> There's a bunch of things that, that God says in other places about divorce that Jesus doesn't cover here. He gives you like two sentences and then he moves on. So be aware of that. So Matthew chapter 5, we're going, to do, we're going to start off with verses 31 and 32. It was also said, so that's the, you have heard it said, uh, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So the you have heard is kind of the accepted version of things, right? Like that's the one that everybody agrees on. And that doesn't really sound like something that religious people would be okay with, right? There, there's that thing where it says, whoever divorces his wife, 
right? Let her, let her give him the certificate. So we read that, we're like, okay, well, is Jesus just saying, yeah, divorce is fine? No, he's not. Is culturally that religiously okay? Yeah, it kind of was in a weird way. G- Moses doesn't deal with this in the law. So this is, this, is, this is inferred from a passage on Deuteronomy that's actually about remarriage. And so it, basically the passage in Deuteronomy says, when you divorce your wife, you have to give her a certificate. It doesn't talk about whether or not that's okay, what the right circumstances are, any of that stuff. It just says if or when that happens, this is how you should do it. And really that certificate, that was what they focused on. Well, if you get a divorce, make sure you get a certificate. And that was really the basic thing that you needed culturally in order for it to be not just automatically super abusive. So think back to the times of the Old Testament. It's not a society like we have. It's a patriarchal society. So it's a bunch of families. That's really the way that society is structured. And so it's not dad that owns it. It's probably grandpa. Like grandpa owns everything. And everybody is connected to grandpa and everybody works for grandpa and the whole society is built around these patriarchal families. And so when a woman gets married, it's not this merging of two households like we see today. It's literally, you leave dad's society focused house, right? And you move into the husband's, grandpa's probably household. So it's, it's focused on households. And so it's not these merging of households. It's like, a woman that got married would move from one household to another household. This is its own thing. So then what that means is that if there's a divorce, it's not the way that culture is where today we'd be like, all right, well, let's split up. Let's make sure that she's got assets. Let's make sure that he's got assets. Let's make sure that if there's kids, that the kids are paid for. Like, let's let's just make sure that everything's covered so that nobody's going to starve to death. In that household, grandpa kept everything. So if you had a divorce, it wasn't, oh, we're now going to split up this household. It's the ex-wife is gone. See you later. Goodbye. That's it. And so the certificate is really just a basic, she should not be required to starve to death. You should allow her to be legally separate so she can find somewhere else to connect to. Right? So divorce was, you're going to send her away. And if there wasn't this requirement for the certificate, you could send her away, but she's not legally divorced. So she can't get remarried. She can't connect to any other household. She's just on her own and she's probably going to starve to death. Right? And so the certificate of divorce is the basic legal protection for a woman that is kicked out of a household to go, she can either get remarried or she can do something to not starve to death. And so Jesus says, okay, we acknowledge that the certificate, the making the legal of it is the bare minimum. It is the bare minimum. If you're going to divorce someone, you can't not divorce them. You have to do the legal paperwork, right? Like there has to be that legal separation. And so that's the universally agreed on part of it. And Jesus' answer, in a nutshell, is that if you agree to divorce, the marriage vows have been broken. Like, the way that we view this a lot of times is if we get divorced, then we break the marriage vows. Or there's some specific thing that's like breaking the marriage vows that makes it okay. And Jesus is saying, no, the idea that that's the thing that you're going for means that the You've already made the decision in your heart. You've already moved in that direction. That's where the problem lays, not with the thing where it ends up. So Jesus expands this in Matthew 19, and we'll get there probably in like 2025. I don't know. We're kind of going through this really slow. (laughs) But in Matthew 19, he says, really specifically, Moses allowed for divorce because of the hardness of your heart. Meaning, if there's divorce, it's because there's sin, and it's probably because the sin is, is unrepentant. Like, if you've got two people that say, we're going to live with each other, we're going to commit to each other for the rest of our lives, and then 
that ends, one of them broke their word, at least one. Right? And so Jesus is saying very specifically, if there's a divorce, there's a breaking of the marriage vow. And by the way, it probably started before that point. It wasn't like we signed the divorce. We're like, well, it's a no-fault divorce. We're not, we don't have a problem with each other. We're, it's, everything's fine. Like, no, at some point you made the decision you don't want to be married to each other anymore. And that's where the problem was. And so everybody's arguing about when it's okay for us to not be married anymore. That's really the debate that people were having in that day. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you missed the point. If you're focused on how can I be not married to this person that I married, that's where the problem is. You've already made that decision in your heart. Remember, this is all about the heart attitude that precedes the actual external sin. And so he's saying, like, listen, if, you, if the other person commits adultery, then obviously that's, that's sin. But also, if you're sending someone away, if you divorce your wife and you send her away, and her only option is to become a concubine, you've pushed her into sin, and you've already sinned. Like, that's still your sin. You're still a part of the problem. And you don't get to sort of, like... Let me start that over. If the goal is to get out of the marriage and sleep with somebody else, you committed the adultery in your heart before you ever sent that person away. Even if you jump through the right Bible hoops to get there, you still committed adultery, right? So that's really the, the point of it. I've actually had this conversation with people. It's really disappointing. They're like, well, my spouse cheated, so I know that like God said it's okay for me to get a divorce, so now I'm going to use that to manipulate them to get what I want out of this relationship. Now, they don't say that part out loud, right? Like, they don't say, like, I'm going to use this to manipulate. But really, a lot of times, it's like, well, like, they cheated, so I know I've got my get-out-of-marriage-free out of card, therefore I can do what I want. Like, no, no, you, that's exactly what Jesus is saying is the wrong approach, Jesus is saying you need to be committed to the marriage. You need to try and work on that. Listen, if you, if you feel like that's, that's it, you've, they've committed adultery, the marriage is done, then okay, we, we can work, like you can deal with that, divorce and move on, whatever. But you don't sit there and say, I'm gonna figure out how to manipulate my marriage. I, it's about, listen, you're committed to the marriage you're in or you're not. John Stott says it this way. He says, the Pharisees were preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, Jesus was concerned with the institution of marriage. Right? Like if you're viewing your, the, the marriage relationship as a thing that you've got to like, okay, well, I want this to be over, so I've got to figure out how to make that happen and ha still have God love me, you, you're in the wrong spot. You started in the wrong spot. The goal of a Jesus follower in their marriage is how can I honor the person I'm married to? How can I honor the vows that I made before God? That, that ought to be the focus. And if it's not, that's where the problem is. Like the sin happens in your heart a long time before any of those other external things happen. So you don't have permission to sort of chase down legal or ethical loopholes that allow you to get out of your relationship. You don't be, get to like flirt with your neighbor and be like, well, we, I never cheated with him, so it's okay. Like, no, you made the decision that you want to get out of this and that's where the sin lies. You're like searching on Facebook for old, old girlfriends. You're like, well, I never actually contacted her, so it's okay. You're like, no, no, you already sinned when you sat there, right? The question is whether or not your heart is focused on your spouse the way that God calls you to be. My first application question is this. What loopholes have I used to avoid having to fully honor my marriage vows? Now, I'm saying this. <laughs> There's a bunch of people in this room that are married that have not officially 
broken their marriage vows. But guess what, guys? We've all broken our marriage vows. <laughs> like, you just go back and read them and you're like, oh, I'm gonna love her unconditionally no matter what. Like, shoot, I mean, that one didn't last a year, guys. Let's be honest. Like, <laughs> it's 20 years she's still with me. But you know, like, uh, it's not because I'm, I've never made a mistake. I've never broken my marriage vows. It's about the, the attitude, right? Like you said, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. That means that you promise to love each other regardless. If she's got a headache, you promise to love her in sickness. Right? He's broke and not looking for a job. You promise to love him for poorer. And we do a bad job of this, right? Like we get to a point where we're like, I'm frustrated with the things that I knew about you before I got married but didn't realize how big they were, right? And I kind of want to not be as involved as I used to be. And we try and renegotiate our marriage vows. And Jesus is saying, like, you, you made those vows. Like, commit to them. Do them. It's, it's way better to just say, okay, Lord, this is an imperfect person that I married. Because you did. And they did too, by the way. Don't forget that. You're both imperfect people and you realize we're going to break our marriage vows in a lot of small ways for the rest of our lives. And the key has to be, once again, let's turn to the grace of God and repent, hopefully as a couple, and then continue to walk forward. So that, that kind of concludes the, the sexuality and marriage arc of that, right? So Jesus is saying, listen, if you're focused on people outside your marriage, that's sin. If you're focused on getting out of your marriage, that's sin. The heart needs to be uh, loyalty and integrity in the, in the marriage vows that you made and to, to one another and before God. Like that's kind of the, the whole of it. it. It's about the heart. Again, it's about the heart attitude. Moving forward, uh, verse 33. This is kind of like a little one in the middle of a couple of other big ones. So this is a little bit of a standalone. Uh, Matthew 5, starting verse 43, it says this. Again, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head. You cannot make one hair in your head, hair white or black. Let it, what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more comes from evil. So again, Jesus starts with the you have heard, and it's really not a specific spot in the law that he grabs it from. It's a summary of a couple different things. Um, he, they're saying, listen, if you, if you make an oath before God, then you have to keep that. But if you make a different kind of oath, there's a little bit of wiggle room. It's really the cultural understanding of this. And so it's like, well, okay, you make an oath before God, that one you have to keep. But then like, I'm going to make an oath by something else. I'm going to swear on something else and I don't really have to keep that one because I didn't use the name of God. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so it's, it's basically you're trying to wiggle around it, right? Like the reason the command is necessary is because you don't want to use the actual form, but you want to use or you want to use the form, but you don't want to use the actual words that put you on the hook, right? It's negotiating with your integrity. So you're like, okay, I swear that I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to swear by God. I'm going to swear by something else so that I'm not really accountable. So we say, I you know, and I'm not saying anybody says this, just things you hear, right? I swear in my mother's grave. We're like, well, you wouldn't possibly break that. Yeah, but you didn't swear to God, right? Or I swear in my son's head or like, 
I swear to God, is actually one we use a lot in this culture, right? Those ball, by the way, I noticed all those work better with either a Boston or New York accent. I don't know why it is, but like if you have a gangster saying it, it sounds more right. I used to work with a guy that would do this all the time. He would come in and you'd be, he'd be like, you'd ask him a question like, hey, did you deliver that stuff to this, this other department? He'd be like, I swear to God, I did it at two o'clock. And he would do it all the time, all the time. And you're like, I'm never sure if you're just saying that really quick because, you know, you want to convince me or you didn't and you're trying to convince me or you actually did and you're being honest. Like, I never was sure how to place it. And he was a nice enough guy, but you always kind of question his integrity because you'd be like, you said two o'clock. It felt like it was 3.30 when you delivered it. I'm not sure. Swear to God, it was two. I swear it was two. I'm like, okay, all right. I'm not going to argue with you. And he was great right until he got fired for falsifying quality control documents, right? Like, oh, he had no integrity at all. He just said that to convince you. Like, no, it was two o'clock. I swear to God. And you're like, yeah, no, you're lying. He was a liar. He was always a liar. And he said that to try and convince you that he wasn't. That was really what it was. And as the people of God, that's the opposite of what we want, right? Like we want to be so marked with integrity that there's not a question about it. It's not that it's a debate. It's not that it's a discussion. It's like, no, I I just said this. And if you don't believe me, that's fine. But this is where I'm at. And this is what I'm saying. And and you either trust me or you don't. But at the end of the day, this is the truth, right? And, And that ought to be our attitude. So we shouldn't have to swear an oath for people to think that we're being honest, We shouldn't have to convince people that we're being honest. We're just like, yes, I'm telling you the truth. And if you don't believe me, that's okay. But at the end of the day, I'm just going to be honest all the time. I'm going to have integrity all the time because that's what God calls me to. I don't have to convince you. I don't have to to try and make you think that I'm telling you the truth. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to say, yes, I agree with it. I don't think that this means you can't ever swear an oath to be a witness at a trial, right? Or swear an oath as a judge or any of those things. But it really comes back to, if you're going to be honest, then you just commit to it and then you do it. And if you're going to not do it, you just say, I'm not going to do this. And then you don't do it. There used to be a phrase that people would say, his word is his bond, right? It would say a person that was so honest, so full of integrity, that basically the thing that they said was the same as if they signed a legal document and slapped down money about it. Like that's how trustworthy they are. Now it's devolved a little bit. Now it's word is bond and it's, I'm, you say that as just another oath, right? Like it's not, it's not actually what it ought to be. But it comes back to we need to be honest about what we say. We need to be honest in the way that we act toward other people. We need to have integrity in all the things that we say and do. My application question here is this. How comfortable are people taking me at my word? Specifically the people that I interact with all the time. How how comfortable are those people that I have the integrity that if I say I'm going to do something, I'm going to follow through on it? And if the answer is they're not, (laughs) then you have to look at yourself and say, listen, this is an area that I need to work on, that I need to be before God about how I can honor the things that I say and not have to convince people of what I say being true. Just just do what I can. I was actually convinced, convicted of it this week because every month Heather tells me when my credit card is due and every month I'm a day late. <laughs> and I'm always like, I'll get it to you Wednesday. I know that you need it Wednesday. And like Thursday, sure enough, I'm like, come on. 
And Heather's very forgiving. She's not here this morning. She's very forgiving. So she doesn't call me out on it. But at the same time, like, if I say I'm going to do it on Wednesday, just do it on Wednesday. It's not that complicated. But for whatever reason, it's just, it, it, it moves to Thursday. That's a, that's a problem I need to deal with, right? But overall, we have to examine ourselves and say, am I honest? Am I trustworthy? Do I interact with people with having integrity? All right, the next one. We get a couple on the way that we treat other people, which is important. Uh, and this one's pretty famous. So verse 38. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go to one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. The front end command in the law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, that one sounds really violent to us in this culture today, right? Uh, it's, it's difficult because this was actually not supposed to be about interpersonal relationships. It's, it is violent if it's interpersonal. It's actually supposed to be a sentencing guideline. So you, you look in the Old Testament and God says, listen, if you're going to be a judge, this is the way that you should treat people that damage other people. And basically, it's a sentencing guideline so that you don't go way over the top, right? Like, well, you, you know, broke my tooth and now you get killed because I'm rich and powerful and I don't like you, right? Or on the other hand, uh, you get off completely because you did something and you were rich and powerful and you wanted to get off, right? So Jesus says, listen, this is the Old Testament law that was a sentencing guideline. It's there to make sure that people get a just result for the things that they do wrong. And so from that perspective, it's fair. And what people had started to do was say, okay, so interpersonally, if you hurt me and I think it's a problem, I can come back and hurt you the same amount. And that was not the point. And Jesus' command pretty drastically forces us to change our attitude because these these examples that he gives us are not, they're not legal situations. They're actually ones where it's an interpersonal insult, right? So when he says, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, that's the back of the hand with the right hand, the strong hand, right? And so that's, that's a personal insult. That's not, oh, you slapped me and you're trying to beat me up. That's, that's me personally thinking like you're beneath me. That's the way that it's, it's perceived culturally. Uh, someone sues you for your shirt, you give them your coat as well. Why are they sh- suing you for your shirt? Culturally, you had one shirt. It's not like you got 50 of them in your wardrobe, right? Like you had one thing and they're like, no, I want that. I'm coming after that. The one thing that you have to wear tomorrow to dinner. And like they would come, and Jesus says, yeah, give them your coat too, it's fine. Walk a mile. Legally, a Roman soldier could make you carry his backpack. So 80-pound rucksack, you can carry it with you. And they're saying, legally, he can make you carry it a mile. And you're supposed to say, I want to carry it too, because I care about you as a person. So the whole idea of defending your pride or protecting your, your honor just goes right out the window. Because these are personal insults that Jesus is saying you, we have to absorb and say, that's okay, I forgive you, let me help you out. And that's the response that Jesus says. And so when we read them, it says, do not resist an evil person. And so we read that and we're like, ah, I don't know. I'm not comfortable with that. And I'm not, there's a line between being dormant 
and retaliating. So there's this line where Jesus says, do not resist an evil person. I think that he means if an evil person insults you, then you don't come back and try and, you know, get your whatever out of them. You don't try and take them, take it back from them. You don't attack them back. But at the same time, we have a responsibility to sort of absorb that and say, that's the way that the world is. And God wants me to be humble and submissive in that circumstance. And it's really difficult because it's easy to see people that are bad and the way that they treat me and to want to rise up and, and push back. The issue is that, and, and Ephesians 6 talks about this a little bit. It talks about we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And so the problem is, is when we get our, our you know, we get frustrated about the way that people insult me. We attack that person back. And what we forget is that that's a person that God still loves and that needs to come to repentance and that needs to come to a relationship with him. And if I come back and hurt them as much as they hurt me, they're never going to hear that. Definitely not from me, but possibly not from anyone else. And so if we really view this world as a place that's broken and people that really need Jesus, then we have to say, your attack on me is, is sin, yes, and also I love you in spite of the fact that you're a sinner. Why? Because God loved me in spite of the fact that I'm a sinner. Romans 12, verse 17, it says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave that to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So Paul sort of expands on what Jesus is saying. He says, listen, when you're insulted, when you're attacked, you have to be intentional and make a willful decision. I'm not going to retaliate. I'm going to treat you well in response. That's hard. <laughs> and that's not a thing that we can do without the Holy Spirit. I mean, naturally, we have 0% chance of accomplishing that. It has to be the Holy Spirit working in our hearts and saying, this is, this is what you have to do in this situation and being humble before God and, and just keep going back to the fact that we have to forgive and treat this person with love. And, and we don't see it very often. And we see it working even less often. But I want to make you think about this a little bit. If you want a real-world application... Think about the Montgomery bus boycott. So for those of you that may not be familiar with the details, let me give you the really quick version. So in the 1950s, in the southern half of the United States, uh, segregation was legal. It wasn't really legal, but everybody just pretended it was. And legally, that meant that in Montgomery, which is a city in Alabama, right, deep south, uh, legally, that meant in Alabama that if you were not white, you had to sit in the back of the bus, period, end of story. And you didn't get to debate that or negotiate that. That was just the way that it was. So Rosa Parks is this black woman, and she's riding the bus home, and she's sitting there, and she's asked to move to the back of the bus. There weren't seats in the back of the bus. The bus was completely full, and a white guy came on, and the bus driver said, you have to move to the back of the bus. There's nowhere for her to sit, and she's basically like, I'm not, I'm not moving. It's not violent. It's not retaliation. It's simply, this is what I have legally as a right. She gets arrested. 
Uh, and basically, the entire African-American community of Alabama says, not okay. And so they decided that they're not going to ride the buses. Now, we hear about the Montgomery bus boycott, and we think, oh, that was a thing where they didn't ride the bus for a little bit, and then like, they got to ride the bus wherever they wanted. Guys, it was a year. Think about a year without your main source of transportation. Your life is very difficult as a result, right? And so this entire community says, we're going to not do the easy thing. We're going to simply not do the thing that basically would offend our principles, right? And so as a result of that boycott, segregation became illegal in Montgomery, I mean, on the buses. And that was the first step toward really a larger movement in the United States of equal rights for African-Americans, right? So that was like the first thing. But you look at that and you're like, a year of not retaliating, they didn't, buy, they didn't riot, there was nothing, it was a bunch of pastors and churches that were like, we're gonna stop riding the bus. It was nonviolent, but it was, we're not gonna be doormats either. And so it's really difficult and it's very painful, and yet the result is a thing that glorified and honored God. Does that make sense? Like as, as an example of sort of that line between I'm not I'm not doing the thing. I'm not retaliating out of, out of the insult. I'm not attacking anyone. But at the same time, I'm being obedient before God, right? And so we see this sort of big historical movement that comes out of really the Sermon on the Mount. And you can debate with me on this if you want, but MLK, big fan of the Sermon on the Mount. Like he talked a lot about that. The key really is following the leading of the Holy Spirit and having the stomach to actually follow through on it when it gets hard. Because guys, this is impossible. Like you can't do it on your own. It has to be the Holy Spirit. And it's gonna take time and it's gonna take pain, but that, this is what God calls us to do. And then of course, Jesus, as he always does, doubles down on the really hard thing, right? Verse 43, you have heard that it was said, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who's in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Do you not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? So the other you have heard statements have been either from the Old Testament or compilations of ideas from the Old Testament. This one's not. This is just common thought in the religious world of the day. It was, Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's one of the commands in the Old Testament. And so they sort of drew a line and said, well, if you have to love your neighbor, that means you don't have to love everybody else. Therefore, if somebody's not your neighbor, you're free to hate them. And so they said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. And so Jesus is saying, listen, this is what the religious leaders today are saying. That's wrong. The command, love your neighbor, is actually love everyone that's around you. If you want to tease this out, you can go look at the, the story of the Good Samaritan, right? Where the Samaritan is the guy that the Jewish people would have hated the most, and he responded in love. So the person you hate the most is also your neighbor. That was actually the context of that story, is somebody asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? And Jesus is like, the guy that you hate the most, right? That's, that's the answer. So any person that needs your help that needs to be shown the love of Jesus, that's your neighbor. You have to love them. Whether you like them or not, whether they like you, none of that matters. It's, it's about whether they need you. 
This, <laughs> this is even more challenging, right? Like the last one's don't punch back when somebody punches you. That's about self-control. I can just stop doing that and I should be okay. This is about the heart. It's much deeper. This is love the person that not just punched you, but wants to kill you. And we don't really experience that in our culture. Like, Enemy is this really strong word in our culture. But at the same time, Jesus says, it doesn't matter who that person is. It doesn't matter that you like them or not. Your response before God has to be to love them. And that's a heart thing. That's an internal thing. I can't just not act out toward them. I have to actually have a heart that loves them and accepts them. Because, and we've talked about this a bunch of times, true righteousness is deeper than following the rule, right? The external rule is don't punch them. They hit you, don't hit back. And Jesus is like, no, that's not enough. You can't just follow the rule. It actually has to come from your heart. It has to be a change inside. And we can't do this. <laughs> like, you can't change your heart to love your enemies. It's not possible. We have to start, and it's only the start, we have to start by looking at what Jesus did. Because what did Jesus do? He loved his enemies. We were rebels. We were antagonistic toward God. We hated him, and he loved us anyway. Romans 5 says it this way. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so the starting point of the gospel is that Jesus loved his enemies enough to die for them. That's us. We were the enemies of God. We were far away. We wandered. We rebelled. We were the problem. And Jesus said, that doesn't matter. I'm going to set aside my glory. I'm going to come down to earth and I'm willing to die for you because I love you, even though you're my enemies. And so our faith is based on God loving his enemies. So if we want to be like Jesus, if we want to follow him the way that he calls us to, we don't have a choice other than to start by loving our enemies. So two applications here, questions here. The first is, have you been reconciled to God? Because if we're God's enemies, if we're far away, if we rejected him and we've never come to him in faith, we're still far away. We have to come to him in faith and say, Jesus, I'm wrong. I'm a sinner. I need your grace. I need your love. I know that you died for me. And we have to start the relationship there, acknowledging that we're the enemies of God. That's the only place. But then after that, we have to look like our heavenly father. We have to start to act like Jesus. How much do my relationships with the people I dislike reflect the way that God loves me? Because guys, it's really easy to just be the, I'm not gonna hit them back. It's easy to just say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna not be actively aggressive toward the people I dislike. That's not a heart that reflects the heart of God. Like he asks us to love them, to be sacrificial in our relationships toward them, to say, listen, this is my preference, this is what I want, and I'm gonna set that aside because even though I don't like you, I know that I'm supposed to love you and I need to treat you that way. And, and Jesus says, listen, if you act like everyone else, you're not better than the person you hate. 
If they hate you and you hate them, like that's just a lot of hatred. You're not displaying the love of Jesus at all. If you want to display that you're like your heavenly father, if you want to demonstrate who you are as a part of the family of God, you've got to change. You've got to allow, you've got to allow the Holy Spirit to change your heart and you've got to actively work toward that. And once again, the standard is overwhelming. I can't love people I hate on my own. And Jesus looks at that and he's like, you know what? I've mentioned six examples. That's just the start because he wraps up in verse 48 like this. You must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Can't do it, guys. (laughs) And, And you read that and you're like, oh, that's probably just the thing that Jesus says. That's not what God really expects, right? But it's through the whole Bible. Genesis 17, God comes to Abraham and he says, I am God Almighty, To Abraham, he says, walk before me and be blameless. That means no sin. Jesus is giving the law in Leviticus. He says, I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am holy. Next verse, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You should therefore be holy because I am holy. Holy means no sin because God has no sin. It means to be like God, right? In the New Testament, James says, uh, let, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So there's two ways to understand this. One is the way that we normally do and the other one's right. (laughs) I'm glad that one landed. That was good. You guys took a second. It's very easy for us to say the standard is holiness. I can't achieve it. I'd just be like, I'm done. I can't do it. It's impossible. I think the best way to understand this is actually in John, uh, 1 John 3, 9. Steve preached on this last, last February. He did a great job. If this is confusing or you're struggling with this, then look at that. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. He cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. So what happens is when we come to God, when we come to Jesus in faith, he gives us the Holy Spirit, and that changes us. And we can't keep sinning all the time and not feel that. So the direction of our lives becomes we want to honor God more and more. We're going to chop out sin more and more. We're going to be obedient more and more. That's the direction of our lives. And that's because we have the Holy Spirit. So yeah, we're going to fail, but the direction overall needs to be when I fail, I repent, I come back. And that's the cycle. I don't have much time. Oh, I'm over. Oh, good. I'll try and do this quickly. <laughs> All right, so what do, I do? what do we do? Because now I just laid it on you and you're like, okay, so now we know we have to repent, we have to move forward. Like, but how do you do that? Like, what's the thing that you do? How do you make progress in that area? Because I feel like as Christians, we struggle with this. We're like, I don't know what all the next steps are. I don't even know like what the next step is. Here's your first next step. Start with the sin you know. Start with the sin that the Holy Spirit has already laid on your heart that you're struggling with. Repent of that decide to be done with it. I had, a, I had a prof in seminary that was like, everybody thinks sin is a weeble wobble, right? You know the weeble wobble, you blow them up, you punch them, they pop right back up. He goes, guess how you beat a weeble wobble? With a gun, you're done with it, boom. Put a hole in the weeble wobble, deflates, you're done. You're never dealing with it again. When you get serious about your sin, you would be surprised at the progress you can make. A lot of times we kind of push it away because we want it to come back, right? Like, oh no, not that sin. Oh, it's back, oh no. No, get serious about it. What that means, so repent of it, move forward. What that means is get serious about understanding how this works. 
It's not just a one time, oh, I beat this sin and I'm, like, it is a lifestyle of repentance. It's, God, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to deal with? What's the thing that you asked me to do? And doing it, and then doing it again. And then having another time where you're like, God, I'm struggling with this. How can I get past this? It's being very serious. Study and meditate what it means to be holy in the Old Testament. Study and meditate what it means to be mature and complete in the New Testament. They're different ideas, but they're both helpful. Like, think about what it actually means to be holy. Read the Sermon on the Mount a bunch. (laughs) If you get stuck, I'm going to recommend three books because they've all been helpful to me as I've dealt with this. One is Jerry Bridges' The Pursuit of Holiness. He talks about how to deal with sin and how to move past it. The book is older than me, by the way. Uh, It's been reprinted a couple times. It's really helpful. Uh, If you're really intellectual, Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy sort of lays out a bunch of this kind of stuff about dealing with sin, not just in my own life, not just in the short-term, but long-term thought processes and directions. Um, Matt Chandler, that one's pretty recent, within the last 10 years. And he talks about, listen, you're a sinner, you need to change your life. This is how you do it in a way that's focused on the gospel. Not just, I have to do this, I need to fix this one thing, I have to repent of this sin, but saying this is how the gospel changes our lives. Any, all of those books, very helpful if you're trying to get serious about this. The third idea, connect with other people that are serious about walking with Jesus. And I don't mean say hi to people in the lobby on Sunday. I mean actually connect with them. Right? Like have a relationship where you can call them up and be like, guys, this is a sin that I'm struggling with right now. Can you pray for me? Like that's a really honest conversation that takes some trust, right? But you have to find those people and walk with those people closely enough to have those relationships. We all have blind spots. Every single one of us has things that we don't realize about ourselves. We need people around us to point those things out so that we can deal with them. That's why we have life groups. That's why we have discipleship groups. If you're not in either one of those, you probably need to go to church center and sign up. This is why we have an elder board and not just one guy at the top, right? Because no matter who that one guy at the top is, he's got blind spots. So there's elders, and the elders are there partially to keep each other in check, to remind each other, hey, you're probably out of line on this. Hey, you probably need to deal with this. This is where we need to be as a church, right? Like, it's, it's community. That's why we have a teaching team and not just one guy. It's because I've got blind spots, and I don't talk about things that I have blind spots on. But Dave has different blind spots, so he talks about the things that I miss. And Steve has different blind spots, and he talks about the things that I miss. Like, that's, that's how that works. That's the point of that. The thing is, is we have to do this as a community. If we decide to get serious about holiness as a one person, it's going to be a struggle. We have to actually move forward as a community and hold each other accountable. I'm way past. Cool. I won't review all my points. True righteousness is deeper than us following the rules, right? If there's a rule and we can follow it, then we can probably manipulate it. And at the end of it, it has to be that we receive new hearts from Jesus, that we receive the Holy Spirit, and that we walk in humility and repentance, and and that's actually what God calls us to. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the fact that even though we cannot achieve righteousness on our own, that you give it to us as a free gift because you love us. And you give us the Holy Spirit so that practically the way that it works out is that we can actually win against our sin that we can stop trying to get out of our marriage and stop insulting people and stop being jerks, but actually be people that reflect your character and your love for the world. I pray that we would be serious about our holiness, about our sin, about the way that we need to walk, that we would allow your Holy Spirit to lead us and we would be submitted to that.